Welcome to the Align Nutrition Podcast, a place where eating doesn't get in the way of living. We use science and psychology to move past the challenges you face while healing your relationship to food. I'm your host, Erica Drury, a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. For the past 10 years, I've been helping people like you find a happy medium of flow and balance with eating. If solving these issues were easy, you would have figured it out already. Expect to learn a new way. Each week, you'll hear trainings, listen in on mini coaching sessions from people on your same path, and learn from other guest professionals. I'm so glad you've joined me. Hi there. Welcome back to the Align Nutrition Podcast. I'm so excited to share with you today. I have a guest interview with Cassandra Baker and some of the topics that we discuss are so perfect for this time of year. I think the holiday season and leading into next year, it's been a long year this year, the last couple of years. It can just be really something when you're working on your relationship to food to feel bogged down and dragged down and tired and burned out. It's a long journey. And so it's always helpful to hear stories of hope and inspiration, other people that you can relate to and see that they got some of through some of the same things that hopefully you are working to get through as well. So I hope that you enjoy this interview. We talk about things such as perfectionism, overcoming orthorexia and obsession with healthy eating. And Cass, she uses a lot of analogies and the way she has constructed her own recovery that I think you'll find really, really relatable. She's been through a lot. She's overcome a lot. And she shares a lot of strategies and key points in her own healing and recovery that she uses today. So let me tell you a little bit about who Cassandra Baker is. She is someone who knows what it's like to have a love-hate relationship with food in her body. It's her own personal experience and recovery from two eating disorders that drive her passion to encourage women to find freedom. She is a certified health and life coach and public speaker, helping women who are trapped in unhealthy habits such as perfectionism, disordered eating, legalism, people-pleasing so that they can live free. I think you are going to love to hear this interview, and she has a special offer for only listeners of this podcast. And one of the things that she values is really giving back. She's a wonderful person, and I'm so grateful that she is giving us a special offer. So I hope you enjoy the interview and please don't hesitate to reach out to either of us. I will include her contact information in the show notes so that you can get in touch with her. Thank you so much. On to the episode. Hi, Cassandra. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Erica. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, we have talked so, so many times on and offline, and I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast today and for other listeners to hear your story and to hear from you, not only as someone who's been through it, but as a professional who now helps other people through it. I know we were talking offline that, you know, especially this time of year, it can be discouraging. There can be ups and downs in the recovery process. We're headed into the holidays and a new year, which can bring a lot of pressures. And I think there's plenty of podcasts out there on how to get through the holidays. And I thought, you know, this theme of hope and just hearing from you could be just a unique way to share something that is hopefully valuable and helpful. So thank you again for being here. 
Thanks, Erica. You know, if I can share my story and offer just a glimmer of hope to someone else, then it makes what I went through, um, it kind of redeems it in in such a beautiful way. And, you know, I never really thought I would be sitting here on the other side of recovered. And I am. So I always say, if it's possible for me, it's possible for other people. And that's why I tell my story. Yes. Before we hop into your story, that makes me think of What would it have been like for you to hear stories from others uh, when you were really deep in it? Like how might you have felt or or what maybe hesitations or I don't know, what would that have been like for you? You know, I don't really think I heard stories of people being free and recovered until I started working with you. Mm -hmm. Actually, I remember in college, I was in an eating disorder support group, but we were all in the thick of it, right? We weren't on the other side. And I don't remember growing up. I know other people who struggled with food, but I don't ever remember talking with someone who had been on the other side. And so it wasn't really until I started working with you and then you kind of pointed me in the direction of a couple of different people. Reading Life Without Ed, my Jenny Schaefer, right? That was the first time that I really started realizing, oh, recovered is a possibility for someone struggling with an eating disorder versus, you know, what I'd always kind of heard and associated like an addict or an alcoholic that they're the rest of their lives going to be recovering. So, so that's been, yeah, just so freeing. And that's part of the reason I'm so passionate about sharing my story is because I wonder what, how it would have made a difference for me if I had heard someone sooner. That makes sense. And I think too, we spent a lot of time Really, even unpacking all the ways that your eating disorder was showing up in your life and and even ways that it would have been praised by society. And I so I could even see where you might have not even seen yourself in some of those things where it was just all so intertwined. So let's hop in. Talk to me about like food and when it became an issue for you, what what kind of your story was, where it began and and just take us through. Growing up, I looking from the outside, looking in, my life looked pretty great. I have a mom and a dad, a younger sister. We were and are a close family. My parents loved me. You know, my all my basic needs were for sure being met. I did well in school. I was a leader in school. I had friends. And so someone looking at me would say, wow, she's, you know, she's really blessed. She has a lot going for her. It was pretty young when I first started struggling with depression. I think I was in middle school. Of course, at the time, I didn't know what it was. But looking back, it was clearly depression. It started very young. It wasn't just that. There was like a perfect storm coming together. So it's the depression, the anxiety. I started dieting maybe in middle school, definitely in junior high. I... Was it hearing conversations or comparing your bodies to other people? Do you remember how that started? So I think my mom was probably dieting. I think it was the the, the first memory of a diet was the Atkins diet. I remember doing I remember that era. Um, <laughs> I did multiple. <laughs> I went to some dieting um, programs with my mom. I remember doing that. I was in middle school the first time. I remember thinking my body is bigger um, than other people's. So. I also am a highly sensitive person. Like I just feel very deeply. I have a 
a nervous system that just gets overwhelmed faster as well, which of course I had no idea about the highly sensitive personality back then. And then of course, growing up in a culture that says in order to be somebody valuable, to be loved someday, to be attractive, you know, you have to look a certain way. I grew up in a Christian home. And so there was also the, the spiritual aspect that was put on it, like kind of like you have to earn approval and to be good kind of thing, which was unhealthy. And so all together, they kind of came um, and did lead into binge eating disorder, which started, of course, soon after the, the binging started soon after the dieting started. And then it also, you know, was just kind of a way of coping with life. And then later on in my mid twenties, I developed orthorexia, which is uh, for those who might be new to the podcast an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, but the binge eating disorder really started as a means of, of course, the dieting led to the binging, but then also the binging became a means of being able to try to cope with life to, to soothe because I had all this emotional upheaval, but I didn't have the tools to be able to recognize that and how to process emotions and how to emotionally regulate in a, in a healthy way. So I, at this point, like to introduce who I call Ed and the gang, and I'm sure you remember them well. <laughs> That's what was so wonderful about working with you, because as you've described, there's all these aspects that led to it. And I think a lot of people listening can relate to that. You know, it wasn't just one thing. There may have been those moments where you remember, oh my gosh, that really clicked into place during that time. But it's all usually in hindsight that you can kind of pinpoint when things might have really gone off in a direction that felt, you know, either out of your control or um, maybe beyond where it had been kind of simmering in the background. And I think what you did in your recovery, and I'm excited to talk through Ed and the gang, it just it is the way that you had these different aspects and kind of externalize them into different parts and pieces so that you could make sense of it. And then now kind of more integrated and like pulling it forward. But I'm, I just think that a lot of people, especially people who are sensitive like you, very intelligent like you, very successful, very happy, very wonderful, loving, full life, you know, uh, it, we think that these things that are assets can become uh, liabilities. And so I, I think it was really helpful the way that you were able to separate some of them because they weren't all the voice of the eating disorder or they would have fed the voice of the eating disorder in different ways. So I, I think that that'll be really, really useful. So I um, go ahead, please. I didn't, thanks for letting yeah. me riff on that a little bit. It's just really unique and valuable. Mm. I'm a visual person. So this was life-changing for me because before I would have described like in general, my life situation is like, oh, people looking outside thought everything looked great, but I didn't want to get up and out of bed in the morning. Right. There was, um, it was very paralyzing and crushing. And so it was just this terrible life situation, but I couldn't tell you why. Um, in my childhood, I, you know, I couldn't really say, oh, I had, you know, these big T traumas, you know, that it led to it kind of thing. I had no awareness of little T trauma, you know, the smaller things that can contribute. And so 
Jenny Schaefer's book, Life Without Ed, really was the starting point of recognizing, oh, I'm not my eating disorder anymore. I can start separating myself from him versus uh, just like I am shame versus, versus Ed saying you should be ashamed. And then as we started, kept working, I realized, oh, there's more than Ed going on here. So there's perfectionism. I think I called her Miss P. Mr. P was performance. Uh, control was one. Legalism was one. And while my faith was a really important part and one of the keys to my recovery, the dysfunctional aspect of how Ed took that and twisted it was very toxic. And so it was so interesting and life-changing because so much of what I ended up doing in recovery was when... I saw this picture of Ed and the gang, or I realized I had Ed and the gang. I had this, I got this picture of me laying on the ground. And then Ed and the gang represent this like hundred ton rock that are on top of me. So that would be my life situation. That was what life was like living under Ed and the gang. It was crushing. Like from the outside, you were performing and you Mm -hmm. were, you know, doing all the things, but how difficult that must have been for you. And that's where I think that the weight, it represents how hard it was for you to pretend you were okay. Yeah. And that's the thing, like my shame and my perfectionism said, you can't let anyone know the true depths of this because like even my parents didn't realize the true depths of it because it was just so shaming. And it kept me from really saying how desperate and how like lack of oxygen, no light crushing, you know, like no space between me and the ground. And so it was just an awful way to live. In 2011, I started going to counseling and getting some help and recognizing that I had some little T trauma in my life. And so I was definitely doing some of the underlying work of what led to Ed and the gang. But you can't, you know, this is a journey, you can't fix it all at one time. And so it was during that time that I actually developed the orthorexia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, came in to help you out a little bit. Yeah, it did. I was like, let me help with all this upheaval that you have going on. <laughs> and it was interesting because, of course, it started out by like, I'm not going to diet. I'm just going to eat healthy. I had a cruise coming up later that fall. And so just slowly and surely, I started working out more, starting cutting out things, things having to be, quote unquote, more pure and, quote unquote, more clean, right? I had... I had like, when I came to see you, I think for the first time I brought my list of like everything I was allowed to have and what was good and what I wasn't allowed to have. Very rigid. Several pages long. (laughs) And this, but only with this, this, but this type, this, but only if I made it the amount of conditions that were put on this. And we joked about it coming in to help you out, but I think that really your situation in that way is very common where you have all these coping skills and strategies like your dysfunctional eating patterns are there to help you get by with everything else. So it makes sense that when you started going to therapy, like you said, that upheaval, you started kind of pulling things out that you needed something else at the time to it was beyond your level of ability to cope with all those things that were coming out of the box. And so you ended up utilizing orthorexia, which is so just like any other eating issue, so innocent and so solution focused until 
it becomes a problem in and of itself. I, I can control this. I can focus on this. This is good for me. I'm taking care of myself. I'm, I need a reset. I need to, something to focus on. And I just, um, I can't, I can't really blame you. Would you mind expounding a bit on Ed and the gang, just so people can have an idea of who these characters are. You introduce them. And then I want to revisit the cruise and and the entrance of orthorexia. But I wanted people to understand more about like the legalism and the perfectionism and, and kind of what they sounded like, maybe what their characters yeah, were. So maybe kind of with the orthorexia, like Ed and the gang would have. And here's the thing, too. They all come at one time and are kind of a tangled mess. So they kind of overwhelm you. And that's part of the fact that they gang up on you. Right. So it'd be something like, oh, well you're starting to get really healthy and health equals like smaller weight equals being healthy. So you're better now. You're more pure. You are more valuable. You're more attractive. See, um, the other thing too, is as my weight for the first time in my life went down significantly, the praise and accolades from other people like that soundtrack, the volume just went sky high. Like I was getting comments and feedback from people, some of those people who were very close to me in my life. And so Ed was like all over that. He was like, see, I told you, you'd be more valuable, lovable, beautiful, get more attention. It would feel so much better if everyone approves of you. And now that they do approve of your body, you can be okay. And that lasted until like I was plateauing with, you know, with my weight. And then he was like, oh, well, remember how, how nice it was to like have those accolades? What if you would lose another blank amount of pounds? And so, of course, Ed is happy up to a point and he can swing from being praising you to in, in two minutes, uh, he can be literally beating you verbally and emotionally. Um, so just very shaming. And one definitely fed into the other, uh, the legalism like would really come out and like, well, you know, you did these rules. So what if you would start taking away this? And so it really led to, and of course it wasn't quote unquote diet. It was clean eating. And it kind of feeds into that. Like, like I, I see a lot with the people that I work with that morality, that character, and like you've been describing, you're a good person if, or because you did that, there's something wrong with you and those, mm -hmm. those flaws. And I, I think that pulling out that aspect is really, really important when we're trying to identify what's going on. Yeah. And it led to like, I don't know, it was like four or five, 2011 to 2014. You know, I got to that weight that I had said, oh, if I'd get there, I'd be happy. Of course, I, I was quote unquote happier in the sense of like going shopping was like this new high. It, it was very much like a new high, but it was this very self-absorbed, self-obsessed it could never get off the treadmill, you know, to try to, it was all striving and hustling and all just even, even more focus really on myself. But it, it was before it was like the binge eating disorder only hyped on like this obsession of like shame, whereas the orthorexia was this like prideful obsession that was unhealthy, of course. It's more socially acceptable. Um, whereas the yeah. binging, you were often doing that in secret. And, and hiding um, a lot of those behaviors. Yeah. And so just so much in secret, which of course, isolation breeds 
shame in and of itself. I had people in my life who verbally abused me because of my size when I, um, before I had the orthorexia. So, and then in 2014, uh, July of that year, I suffered the first of four traumatic brain injuries. And the first one was the most severe. And in one moment, I literally was uh, knocked out. And in that moment, could no longer do all those ed behaviors in order. And, you know, the traumatic brain injury has forever changed my life. I still today, my life is different because of it. But I also am thankful for it because I don't know that I would have been able to give up the orthorexia ed if it like it wasn't an option i could barely get out of bed to go to work let alone you know the hours and hours i had to spend in the kitchen because i had to food prep everything um the I remember those conversations just you weren't able to even really be standing up to make your homemade barbecue sauce or you were heaping shame and upon yourself because you frankly didn't have the energy or ability to work out in the ways that you were before yeah. I was like suffering like 10 to 15 symptoms on a regular basis. One of them being, or two of them being migraines and vertigo. And I don't know if you, if anyone has ever suffered from a migraine and vertigo, the thought of doing a hit workout. <laughs> I mean, you're just trying to be like, no, <laughs> the bathroom without passing out again. Um, so I was living at a, a six to eight level p- pain uh, level as well with the TBI symptoms. And so that was in July and it wasn't until August of 2015 that we started working together. So somewhere in between there, I came across intuitive eating because here's the thing. I had thought that I had found freedom because I was in a smaller body and that's because, you know, I wasn't aware of diet culture at that time and that health is really not determined by one's weight. And so I read the book and was like, because all of a sudden I realized that I wasn't free because I couldn't do those behaviors. And all of a sudden Ed went crazy. He was not okay with the fact that I couldn't do those behaviors. And he was not okay that we probably weren't going to be able to stay the same size because I, I, you know, again, could barely get out of bed some days. So as I've I don't remember. I I think I found you on some, it was like one of my late nights. I'm never going to be fixed. This is forever the way that my life is going to be that I found you online through a directory, reached out. You happen to be in Ohio, not far from where I live. You know, I'm just so grateful to you. I'm also very grateful to my husband. Recovery is expensive and oftentimes it's not, you know, we didn't have insurance that covered it. And so but I would not be where I'm at today without the professional help. Because again, I was under a hundred ton rock. I'm pretty good at performing my type A personality. I can make all, all the lists. I brought you all the lists. They only, you know, kept me paralyzed more. So it was at that point where I recognized I can't get myself out from underneath here. This is too big for me. And so it wasn't until I was like, okay, I need someone outside of myself. And so ultimately what my recovery team did for me, and you were definitely by far the key to that, that team is they came around me with tools and chisels and started knocking away part of Ed and the gang. And I just wouldn't have been able to do it in and of myself because one, an eating disorder is a legitimate mental illness that you can't just get over. And I needed someone outside of myself. 
you were working a job where you were a leader and you were, uh, you know, running a facility and doing outreach. And you, like you said, you had a husband, you had a life, you were dealing with these medical problems and going to appointments and assessments. You needed help. You needed support. You couldn't do all of it anymore. Yeah. Those four years of like when I started working with you to about 2019, because I was recovering from the TBIs and then I was doing ed recovery work with you. I was head, I was executive director of a nonprofit and overseeing a project remodel at the same time. And I look back, I really don't know how I made it through, but I call those my years of pain. Cause I mean, the years before they were awful, but there was just, I mean, like, it gets worse before it gets better. Recovery means like allowing all that stuff that you push down for so many years to actually come up. That self-care that you found and and it was like this, almost like working backwards or like you were saying you were performing, you were perfectionist. And there was this shame that was like kind of crapping, cracking the whip to keep you going. And yet, you know, things were crumbling, um, you know, or you were trapped under the rock and it's, I remember you had to scale back and pull back. And and that wasn't easy because when you were, you were being verbally assaulted by Ed and the gang of what a piece of crap you were or how lazy you were. And and but it was also helping like the healing self emerge because you just were too exhausted. You were never going to get up again. Yeah. So it when the weight the Ed and the gang, the hundred ton rock started coming off and light and oxygen um, started coming through, but it was a very slow process. And then it was like, once the, the hundred ton rock was off, it was then like, I had to go to the hospital and be an ICU and needed like a lot of attention. And that was a certain amount of time. And then I was like in the step down unit, like a lot of care before I was, you know, out of the hospital. And even then, like after working with you, I I got an eating disorder mentor that, you know, I worked with for several years. So just such a long and slow process. When I remember when you told me like on average, it takes like seven years for someone to recover from an eating disorder. That was kind of shocking because I don't, I have this memory of like us having a conversation well after we started working together that you had said something like, oh, the first time that we met, you could see that I needed help kind of thing. But then it was when we rarely got into it, you realize, oh, my Ed was a lot bigger than what he first presented in that initial like assessment. Yes, because you did. You functioned so well. And you're like, I'm here to fix this issue. Here's my list. Let's start working through it. And then it was like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, this started a long, long time ago. And there's a whole host of characters here with with this initial presentation. And it was it, it. And I think you're highlighting something that's important is how much worse you felt before you felt any better and how much care and attention you needed. And, and, and I think that like analogy of being in the ICU and the step down unit is just that you were forced to be gentle with yourself. You were forced to slow down and there's just no other way you could have gotten better. You know, you couldn't have just stood up out of the rock and, you know, ran back right into your regular life because it just was so cumulative over time. 
Yeah, I really just wanted to wake up the next morning and to just all be okay. But I really realized after where I'm from where I'm at now, I recognize it would have been too much of a trauma, too much of a shock to my body for it to just all come up at one time. Like this, while the slow process is hard and painful, it also it's it's better than just the like having to deal with all of it because there were so many different layers that were really to it. But I remember a key moment in recovery. And it's one that I, I tell my story different times and people are like, Oh, I just love your dietitian for telling you that. So I think I was at home and I was really struggling. And of course, when you struggle with binge eating disorder, it's not a matter of like, should I have a binge or not? It's like, if you are feeling the need to binge, it's like, I have to do the binge in order to be able to move forward in life. And so I had reached out to you uh, through texting and you texted back and you were like, well, go ahead. You just go on right and binge right now, whatever you want, go ahead and eat it and enjoy it. That was like, so shocking, (laughs) but it was like, I think the real first major blow of grace that really defeated Ed in mighty ways. And I remember that I did have somewhat of a binge, but it wasn't near as extreme. And because if I had permission, it wasn't like this shameful thing. (laughs) So uh, yeah, a major key point. And really, it was the first kind of one of the first memories of teaching me how to what I call swim in the gray, not black, white, but in the gray. Um, you know, I, I do believe in right and wrong. There are things that, you know, are black and white, but Ed had weaponized black and white in a way to keep me imprisoned. And so I call it swimming in the gray or swimming in the grace now. And it's one of the, the tools that I love being able to teach my clients and offer to them as well. Yes, it was. Like you said, it's kind of these things that we value and and these things that we want to be, they can be weaponized in ways that aren't serving us. And I, I think that's also like kind of you described this point where, hey, I have permission to binge. It chipped away at that restriction and that black and white, I'm either going to binge or I'm not. And oftentimes in binge eating disorder recovery, we are looking for a reduction in intensity frequency. It's not just going to go away immediately, but we're going to see that, you know, downshift over time. And, um, and, and then I think the next part of your recovery is you're moving towards something. And that's where, you know, you said you started to see the oxygen and the light and, and you're, you're moving in the ways towards your values and kind of rediscovering, hey, I, I do believe some things are right or wrong, but there's a lot of things that aren't just that simple. And how does that show up for you today um, where you are in this recovered space? So now I've been able to apply those things to like my cleaning, you know, before Miss Miss P was like, cleaning has to, you have to do it all and has to all be done at one time. And now I, you know, well, if I can feel the need to like, try to get it all under control and do it perfectly. That just to me now is just a warning sign that something's going on underneath. And it means I need to set a timer and I only have that amount of time and whatever gets done, done, and then let the rest go. Not so imperfect. (laughs) Yeah, it is so imperfect. In fact, um, one of the, the, the key aspects of recovery has really been learning the language of uh, be kind to Cass or BKTK. My, 
And Metro gave me that. And so how can I do this a little bit better than I would have before? Because I really believe that recovery meant I had to wake up one morning and then all of a sudden start doing it all right. But recovery comes from the smallest of steps, practicing over and over and over again, which is what ends up, you know, on a technical aspect, rewiring the brain. And I believe in rewiring of the brain because I don't have the same brain I did 10 years ago. Yeah. My brain what do you is- remember practicing over and over those little tiny things? Was it, did you have to refresh that permission to eat or was it showing up in certain ways that you might've eaten or not eaten or talk to yourself around food? What stands out? Okay. So uh, the small little ways that I practice again and again was creating what I call a 911 list. So a list where it was like the things that you had told me or like homework that you had given me things that like, cause I didn't have the language of freedom living yet. So I wrote down what you told me, like lists of things that I could go and do. So like when I was triggered, that in the moment that I didn't have to remember all the things I needed to tell myself or to do, all I had to remember was go read your 911 list. And I remember being at work, pulling that list out like eight times, (laughs) just again and again, reinforcing. And of course, over time, I was so used to hearing, you know, reading the list that I didn't need the list. But what I found that now that list, um, I now call it my nurture list. It's what I use when I want to work on other areas of my life. And so it just has become like this long list where I can just reference or like, um, because when we're triggered, right, we don't have our full brain to help us like rationally think. And so Um, our prefrontal cortex goes offline. And so my nurture list acts as my prefrontal cortex and just has really then helps bring my brain, full brain back online. And then I can start making um, better decisions kind of thing. But just recognizing like, you know, I'm triggered. I don't have to have it figured out all right now and that it's okay. Another thing too, you know, that was hard was just learning how to feel the feelings. Cause of course that was something that that most of us who struggle with eating disorders never really learned how to do. And so I remember you not sure because whatever you were feeling, you're immediately overriding that. And so just you learned what you were feeling and, and then, then feeling it. Yeah. I remember like I had so much hatred for my younger self. I called her Cass. Oh, just so much hatred, but between, you know, working with my counselor and working with you, I have this such deep, compassion and grace for her because there were so many days where she just didn't want to keep on living. And she, I remember at some point I made a commitment that if I have to die at the age of 70 fighting for freedom from whatever this, my current life situation is, then I'm going down fighting at 70, but like giving up for freedom was something. And that was key because there were decades where I, you know, I struggled for decades and it really felt like hope was like, change was never really going to come. But the fact that I made the commitment. So when I get to the end of the rope and be like, I just can't keep going on. I just don't want to do this anymore. I'd be like, oh, but you promise yourself that you have to keep on fighting. <laughs> that would be the cycle of like, but eventually it led to me to be here. So, you know, I think that that's another key thing of just like, okay, no matter how terrible it gets, I'm just never going to stop fighting for, uh, for freedom. And so it was a long road. I think it was close to seven years. <laughs> I think I count the the work I started in 2011 as really my road to recovery because I wouldn't have been ready to do the eating disorder work had I not done that deeper work um, years before. 
And so then when I, you know, it wasn't like one morning I woke up and was just like, oh, you know, I'm recovered. But the biggest difference for me was like, I described life before recovery, like living in black and white and life now recovered is like living in color. Things are bright. I can really engage because of course, Ed tainted everything. Like I remember Ed attacking me right before I walked down the aisle the day of my wedding day, right? So like even this really special day, Ed tainted it. So I couldn't live fully in the moment. And now I can fully live in the moment and enjoy life. And, you know, recovery looks different than what I thought. Uh, You know, I thought freedom looked like a smaller body, but freedom for me actually meant going back to the weight I was before the orthorexia. Um, But the interesting thing is like, I'm in a healthy body for the first time in my life, even though I'm in a similar size body that I was before, because with the binge eating, you know, I wasn't caring for my body. I was, you know, swinging on this major pendulum of uh, starvation and binging. And then with the orthorexia, you know, it was, it took an eating disorder for me to be in a small body. And I don't believe that that's true health. And so being in the body you're in now, when you know how you're attending to it, you have a nurture list. Whereas before you had, you were just swimming in Mm -hmm. overwhelm and disconnect. Yeah. So it is hard to sometimes live in a society that still buys into the diet culture lie that healthy equals thin. Um, but I, what I lost with the hundred ton rock of Ed and the gang is far more weight than I put back on my body. So technically <laughs> I lost way more than I ever gained back. And I would rather live the way that I'm living now in the body that I'm in than being in a smaller body and crushed underneath yeah. Ed and the gang. Your business name and the work that you do with clients is named Authenticity and Grace. And I don't think that could be any more perfect for describing both your story and then what you do now to pay it forward. Would you mind updating us on what's next for you in your business or how did you transition into the work you're doing with clients? So previous to what I'm doing now, I was still coaching women. And so really, I've been doing that since I graduated from college and I love it. But I was working in an area that wasn't my story. And I'd always wanted to help other women who were struggling with food and body. But of course, I was under Ed in the gang. (laughs) And so when I finally uh, was starting to walk recovered, I just really felt called to to transition to coaching other women who were struggling as I was. And so um, I started Authenticity and Grace in 2018 and went full-time in 2019. And I just, I love coaching, speaking um, one-on-one to women, being able to help in the daily practical things. Like it was key for me that when I was struggling, I could reach out to you. And that's one of the key things that I want to do from, that I do for my clients, I think, is in that moment that's where we could put the small practices. The other thing too, you know, like you really saw me, like I let you, no one knew the binging aspect of my life. Yeah. I let you in and being seen and being safe to be seen in my ugliest was also key. And so that's important for me. And then I also really feel called to just speak and actually particularly go and speak in the Christian church because I think diet culture has leaked in and created a lot of toxicity. And so I really feel um, called to help and support other women who are struggling with their own legalism, perfectionism, and in the gang, in the church. 
to let them know what true freedom and recovered living really looks like. So sharing my story in that capacity as well. I love being able to do that. Wonderful. That is, I couldn't think of any more beautiful way for you to to give back and offer your experience. It's almost like turning something that was so negative and difficult for you in and paying it forward in ways that really have mirrored who you've always been. What um you mentioned that you might have something special for our listeners. Yeah, I would love to be able to gift two of your listeners with a complimentary breaking free strategy session. These are 60 minutes and it's just my way of giving back to you and your listeners because you did so much for me. So if you're interested, uh, just go ahead and email me at info at CassandraBaker.com. And I spell Cassandra with a K. And um, show notes. Good. So just let me know that you were listening to the podcast and you're interested in uh, in the Breaking Free Strategy session and just love to be able to hear your story and, and what you're going through. But it's really important to me that I continue to offer hope to other people because... I wish I had had someone share their story long before I started my recovery work. I think it would have made a difference. Thanks to you for listening. Find me on Instagram at Align Nutrition. Let me know if you like this or if you have other topics or ideas for the podcast. I love hearing from you. If you've gotten something out of this, help us reach more people who need this message by subscribing in your podcast app. A nice rating and review also helps us reach more people and is so appreciated. I hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time.